Hey guys, welcome back to the Toxic Mom Podcast. Happy Monday. I took a little bit of a different approach with this podcast today. I wanted to give myself and you guys a break from the stories I normally cover because they can become very emotionally draining. I reached out to this gentleman a few weeks ago and he was kind enough to reply yes when I asked if I could interview him for this segment. We talked about a variety of different things. Um, he was the first African-American district attorney ever sworn into Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So here is my interview with Seth Williams. You were the first black district attorney in Philadelphia and you were elected November 3rd, 2009, correct? Yes, I was uh, the first African-American district attorney so in the how... history of not only the, the city of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. but the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And uh, I was sworn in on uh, January the 4th of 2010. How did that feel? Uh, it was amazing. You know, it felt like there was a significant uh, weight on my shoulders, you know, um, but it was a great opportunity to serve the city that I love in a way that I think I was uniquely prepared to handle. Was it something that you always wanted to do or somebody told you, I think you should run, you would be great for this position? Well, um, I think I have a healthy ego, and no matter where I worked, I always thought I could do a better job than the boss. Right? Okay. So when I was a kid, I worked at Sears and Roebuck. I sold pipes, lighters, tobacco, and chewing gum. I later delivered pizzas for Domino's. I was a cab driver, um, but I, uh, I went to college. I went to Penn State where my father had attended, and he had done all types of things to address racism, and I tried to follow in his footsteps there. Um, my father used to always talk about, unless you're willing to be a part of the solution, you forfeit your right to complain. So I always found myself in leadership positions and trying to fix things. And uh, after graduating from law school, I uh, came back to Philadelphia. I was hired by then DA Lynn Abraham to be an assistant district attorney. I was one of about 25 that started September the 8th of 1992. And I progressed through the office through, you know, uh, with the municipal court unit, the juvenile court unit, where I prosecuted adults that committed sex crimes against children. I was in the felony waiver unit, the major trials unit, where I prosecuted, you know, thousands of trials. I did 35 jury trials, complex felony cases, uh, aggravated assaults, so people being shot, people being kidnapped, people, you know, you name it, all types of gun violence and street violence and street crimes. I was the assistant chief of the municipal court unit for two years, and I was asked to create a unit called the Repeat Offenders Unit, where I really, really opened my eyes to um, solutions uh, and using criminological uh, studies and evidence-based practices to try to not only better prosecute cases, but to reduce crime and to prevent crime and reduce recidivism, which I learned over time was much more important than the mere excellence in prosecution. Um, and so along the way, I really thought that, you know, I, would, I, I wanted to fix the broken criminal justice system in Philadelphia, that I had a responsibility to try to talk about um, making things to, for us to be smart on crime, not just tough, which was what my predecessor was known as, the tough cookie. And uh, I had begun teaching criminal justice at Penn State Abington. And I learning more about criminology from teaching it just really opened my eyes to a lot of possibilities of how we can make 
the criminal justice system in Philadelphia uh, more equitable, how we could try to eradicate and reduce recidivism, um, but more classism and uh, racism from the system itself, while also making it better and preventing crime and, and making the streets safer. So I ran for DA in 2005 against my predecessor. Um, I got 46% of the vote as like a complete nobody. Nobody knew who I was. I had like no money. Um, I ran again four years later and I got 75% of the vote in the general election. I became, as you mentioned, the first African-American district attorney in the history of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That's wonderful. I remember you winning that. I remember it was a very big celebration. All right, so you're from 2010, so I'm gonna push it forward to 2017. Okay. So you're doing all this great work in the city, and now your name starts to come up in the news, and it's not quite good news. And did you get a heads up that you were being looked at for, and I'm not gonna go into what you did, It's um, people can do their own research. Did you have a heads up that you were being looked into or did you have like a gut feeling that something bad was getting ready to happen? Uh, well, originally my first, I first found out that I was going to be the subject, a uh, target of a federal investigation when uh, FBI agents were following employees that they had been told incorrectly by a disgruntled former uh, employee that we had ghost employees. Okay. So the FBI was following some employees and found out that they were actually, they weren't ghost employees, uh, but this individual had shared a lot of things. And so, you know, it, it, that's how it first was brought to my attention. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I had um, accepted gifts from friends that I should have reported all of them in accord with the city's ethics rules. And I did not follow those because I was ashamed and just lazy, to be honest, right? And arrogant and just not reporting these things like I should have. Um, and some of the gifts I received from my friends, I should not have accepted just because of the appearance of impropriety that I think the district attorney uh, should be above. Um, but, you know, I, through my seven and a half years as the district attorney, had made a lot of enemies. And that was, that's what came back to, to bite me in the you-know-what, and that I was the first uh, district attorney in American history to prosecute the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church uh, for the systematic shielding of pedophile priests. Um, and I'm Catholic, but it was the right thing to do to prosecute the church for what they were doing. Um, but, you know, I made a lot of enemies. I prosecuted other politicians. Um, you know, I had made enemies with the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for things that she had not done. Okay. Um, and so for all of these, my, my predecessor was mad just because I had run against her. And then when you have employees that you have to discipline and just it was a perfect storm for people to bring a lot of things, um, you know. So that's how it all started, and that was the result. Um, but, you know, I remain very proud of the work that we had done, most specifically with creating diversionary programs. Um, my work with Commissioner Ramsey to use evidence-based practices like community-based practice, prosecution, gun stat, and focused deterrence 
to address and significantly reduce gun violence. Um, we created Folks Deterrence in 2012. Uh, Philadelphia had its lowest homicide rates in 2013, 2014, 2015 than we had uh, since the 60s. My successor eliminated all of those programs and homicide and gun violence in Philadelphia is just through the roof. Okay. I remember the one case you did, um, that egregious Dr. Kermit Gosnell. That was an interesting case. Pretty, pretty sad. Yeah, there were so many cases that just shocked the conscience. But the case of Dr. Kermit Gosnell, you would think, comes from the, the pages of science fiction, where a, a gentleman who had graduated from Central's High School and was at some point a, you know, a caring, world-renowned uh, obstetrician, gynecologist, begins running a pill mill. Um, and also, so as a result of him running a pill mill that he became under investigation. And then when the agents went in to see what he was doing with the pill mill, he had an illegal uh, abortion clinic. Um, and again, in the state of Pennsylvania, right, Commonwealth Pennsylvania, abortion, of course, is legal. So I'm not talking about whether the morality of it is just that people paid for late term uh, abortions based on uh, just how much they could pay. So if you could pay a lot, you got better service, you got better painkillers. Um, but what he did was he gave medicines to women that induced labor, sometimes when they were eight months pregnant, seven months pregnant, sometimes even in the ninth month, the, the final trimester, right? And it would induce labor. The children would be born alive. Correct. And he would snip them. That was the term that he used for using surgical scissors to sever their spinal cord. So that is murder. Yes, it is. Um, and again, we can differ on the morality of abortion. But what he was doing wasn't abortion. What he was doing was murder because many of the children, of course, were being born alive. They were breathing. Witnesses testified to that. Uh, to the grand jury and the trial, um, and then he severed their spinal cords, which is not a, a procedure akin to abortion. So it was just horrific. Yeah, it was. Um, and the, the manner in which he maintained and kept severed limbs, uh, body parts, and refrigerators in the uh, clinic was just just horrific. But the, the, the quality, unfortunately, the, the, the poor quality of treatment and the disparate treatment um, black and brown women were downstairs in just a filthy, uh, filthy, uh, you know, rooms, and uh, young uh, white women from the city and the suburbs were upstairs in uh, somewhat still squalid, but just not as filthy and horrific as the conditions that black and brown women were subjected to. Just, just, a, just horrific. And all of that, you know, really caused a lot of trauma to me that I wasn't aware of at the time. Dealing with those cases, dealing with gun violence, having to go to trauma units when police officers were shot or firefighters had buildings collapse on them. Um, I didn't recognize the trauma that I was dealing with at the time. And I was self-medicating with uh, copious amounts of Jack Daniels and martinis. Um, and I later had to learn that that was part of uh, 
what I was struggling with. And right. I that addressed my own trauma of fear of abandonment and rejection and stress that I had um, in healthier ways. Okay, so once you realized that prison was imminent, prison was your only option, um, how did you cope with that? Because there's moments where I'm sure you were just by yourself, like we all are, and just you're warped in your mind and your thoughts. And like you said, you already had some issues with alcohol. So how did you cope with knowing you were going to jail? Well, you know, I went on trial to defend myself against right. charges that I thought were um, incorrect. Um, I knew that I had made mistakes. I had agreed to settle with the ethics board of Philadelphia for having not um, filed my gift uh, reports every year like I should have. Um, but I went on trial and we had a good, you know, first week. We had one bad day and the feds gave my attorneys an offer for me to plead to one count of like the 29 things they had taken before the grand jury. Um, I still wanted to fight, but my attorneys thought that, you know, it was in the best interest just to accept the deal. Okay. I, I had been told that I could remain on bail until sentencing, which might be, um, you know, four months away. Okay. I told my daughters that I'd be home that day for lunch and that we would have the summer to, you know, get our my affairs in order, to try to sell the house, to put things in storage, for us to go to counseling, to be able mm -hmm. to get my head my daughters heads together about what was going on, daddy going away, right? The trauma of that. Uh, I went to court, I entered my plea and the judge had a different opinion than what I had been told by the prosecutors and my bail was revoked. I was handcuffed in court. I was immediately taken underground and uh, walked underground to the federal detention center and uh, put in an orange jumpsuit right after being strip searched and placed in solitary confinement where I remained for five months, 152 days in a cell all by myself. Was that done on purpose or? Solitary confinement. Purpose, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't by mistake that they did that. Okay. Um, so what was that like, just sitting in there by yourself? Uh, just you and your thoughts. Just me. Yeah. Um, you know, I tell folks that I lost my reputation. I lost my uh, public office. I lost my house, my law license, my liberty, my time spent with loved ones. Um, I lost everything, right? I lost my pension, my city pension. I lost my military career, my military pension. Um, and what is when, I, um, when God was all I had, I came to realize God was all I needed. Um, and so it really began a significant um, spiritual journey and, and awakening while I was incarcerated. You know, I only had one hour a day between Monday and Friday when I was handcuffed and taken to what was known as a wreck. It was like a rooftop, but still covered area where I had my own cyclone fenced area of seven feet by 12, where I could just walk around um, and look up at and see this, kind of see the sky um, about 10 feet up in the air, 12 feet up in the air. Um, my only interaction was when the COs, the correctional officers would bring food to myself. Um, and so I, I tried to do as many different things as possible to engage my mind through reading. It was only allowed, I think, like six books at a time in my cell. 
uh, one time they to come in, you know, they knock everything over and just search through your cell for contraband. You know, uh, the only thing I had is I had too many books in my cell, and they took the extra books out of my cell, which just like just broke my heart. You know, um, I tried to do all that I could. I was allowed one telephone call, one fifteen-minute telephone call a month to my daughters. Wow, um, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No email, just sit in your cell. Um, I could talk to other inmates by yelling under the door or through a grate that was between some of the cells uh, where the bathroom was. Um, you know, I'm very thankful that there was a priest. His name was Father Ben Ragai, and uh, he would come to my cell often you know, on the other side of the door and talk to me and pray with me and uh, give me uh, Holy Communion on Sundays. Um, some of the, the guards, you know, would come and talk every now and then. The, the prison psychologist was kind and come and talk. Um, but, you know, humans aren't meant to be placed in solitary confinement. And um, the United Nations, the uh, ACLU, um, all these organizations, Amnesty International, all say that anything more than 10 days of solitary confinement is deleterious to your mental health and causes uh, forms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm still dealing with that. But um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that experience. Um, and uh, you know, I'm trying to be a better person for all of it now. I'm very thankful, though, for uh, the spiritual journey that really began. It was the first time, despite having been a you know, Catholic uh, since I was baptized as a baby, uh, going to church you know, almost every Sunday, um, it was the first time I actually read the Bible from the very first page in Genesis to the very last word uh, in Revelation. I did that multiple times. So that uh, really, um, you know, really began a, a new process in my life. Good, good. All right, so you're out of jail now. What What are you doing currently? You're in you're not practicing law at the moment, but you did tell me you are eligible to get your law license back. So what are you doing? Yeah, I hope to get my law license back. Hopefully make sure. Okay. I am, I've learned, you know, I think I had a unique, a singularly unique perspective on the American criminal justice system, having been an assistant district attorney, uh, a criminal defense attorney, the inspector general of the city of Philadelphia a law professor, the elected district attorney in Philadelphia. I was uh, I was in the Army National Guard. I don't know if you know that. I was the senior defense counsel for the Pennsylvania Army National Guard's 28th Infantry Division. So I was like the head public defender uh, in my Army National Guard unit. Um, and I was a federal target and then federal inmate. Um, and so I think I have a unique perspective on the criminal justice system. I hope to use my professional experience and personal journey uh, to help others. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that. When I came home, I first job that I got, I was working um, as an overnight stocker at a Lowe's. I'm working from 7 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. Just stocking shelves, unloading trucks, fulfilling people's uh, online internet orders. Um, and I found myself to be in the right place at the right time because I was like a, a counselor, a therapist, or chaplain to my coworkers. 
but during the summer when George Floyd had been murdered and many of my coworkers, younger men, almost all of them who had been incarcerated as well, um, were very angry. Mm-hmm. So I tried to do my best to try to talk to them about what had happened, what was going on, and possible ways for them to channel their energies and to get their degrees. While I was away, I taught GED. I found that very fulfilling. 19 of the men that I taught earned their GED. And, uh, you know, really what I learned from that was that the majority of guys I was teaching, they never had problems getting jobs. They had problems keeping jobs, right? They, they didn't have, they lacked the uh, workforce development skills to show up on time, right? Conflict resolution financial literacy skills, things that people need to keep a job. Um, and so I began teaching that um, while I was in prison, um, interviewing resume prep skills. Um, and when I came home, after having worked at this big box store that I told you about, right, I uh, later I was working for a nonprofit and I ran a voter education registration drive for returning citizens. I was later hired by a nonprofit from Baltimore to create in Philadelphia a um, vocational training center and workforce development program. And I found that to be a a phenomenal opportunity and way for me to use my professional experience trying to prevent crime and reduce recidivism with my new skills of teaching GED and workforce development. Um, But, um, Unfortunately, the organization had significant financial issues and they had to cut back on their budget. And so I'm no longer working there for them. Um, I am, as interesting as it might sound, I officiate weddings. <laughs> I have seen you do that when you yeah. post the pictures on um, Twitter. Yes. I have a friend, um, Ms. Stacy Thomas, who owns the Philadelphia Wedding Chapel. I've known her since high school. She went to Girls High, I went to Central High School here in Philadelphia, and she owns the Philadelphia Wedding Chapel, which is in that's on Scotts Lane in East Falls in Philadelphia. And I go there and you know I officiate weddings, and it's just it's just every day it's just filled with happiness and joy and excitement, um, which is a big difference to my old career, which was just murder and mayhem. Correct. So a nice refreshing change, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, it, I get to be corny. I get to say funny things. <laughs> and not get in trouble for being corny. <laughs> um, and I get to wear a bow tie every day. And I just really enjoy it. So I, I do that as well. So I am uh, going to the next chapter. Well, I hope your next chapter is very fulfilling. And I do hope you get your law license back. Thank you, Kyle. And I know how hard you worked for that. And it seems like you're on the straight and narrow. You had a little hump like a lot of us do, but you appear like you learned from it. Yeah. yeah that's so. when, we, when we face our challenges, when we learn the most. And uh, the challenge for all of us is to use that for, for good. And uh, so I'm trying to turn what uh, could be seen as just a horrific um, circumstance into something that can be beneficial not only to myself, but to others. Well, thank you, Seth, for talking to me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And I I appreciate following you on Twitter as well. Ah, It's always fun over there. (laughs) Thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. You're welcome.
Hey, how did you like that podcast? Send me feedback, the Toxic Mom Podcast at gmail.com or Instagram and Twitter at Toxic Mom Podcast. I'll see you guys next Monday where we will be discussing Mir Mercano from Florida. Have a great week.